Six days later, Jesus took with, took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could possibly bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were all terrified. And then a cloud came over and overshadowed them all, and from the cloud there came a voice, and it said, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. And suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, only Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, this is the final Sunday in the Epiphany season. And, you know, as I read my Bible, especially during Epiphany, in preparation for sermons and weekly study, I also am in search of an epiphany. It's not just the season of epiphany. It's any time I open the Bible, I am looking, I am open to some truth, something, some new insight, a confrontational experience with divine truth, an awareness maybe of something that I never thought of before an understanding that I never understood before, an intuitive grasp of some reality that's always been just slightly out of reach, because that's an epiphany. That's what I'm looking for whenever I read the Bible, the reality behind events, a vision of the truth. You know, if you're a follower of Christ, then you are on a journey. It's often referred to as the way of Christ. You are taking on a different nature when you follow Christ. The theologian Paul Tillich would have said, you are becoming the person that you were created to be in the first place, which is not the person that you are conditioned to be by culture and advertising and social convention. We are looking for God's original design for each one of us. But God's ways are really strange. We don't understand them. They're so strange they seem mystical and otherworldly, not human in any way. And God affirms that in Isaiah. My ways are higher than your ways. The nature of God is, however, really reflected in Christ. And so it's in hopes of learning Christ-like ways. We seek a door, an opening to a different world. And if we find it upon entering that door, doorway, we become transformed into something that is new to us, but which God always always knew, something that we were always meant to be. 
And so it's with hope that we come to this final Sunday of Epiphany. It's with this hope that we celebrate the transfiguration of Christ. You know, transfiguration is one of those high holy days that comes every year, and it's always based, obviously, on the same plot. We get it over and over. It's one of those, like Christmas and Easter, it's the same plot all the time. The narrative of how the disciples go up this mountain peak with Jesus, the sacred mountain, and there they witness an amazing thing that their eyes just simply cannot believe, or their eyes see it, but their brains can't process it. Peter, James, and John accompany Jesus up the mountain, and it's an abrupt departure. Mark doesn't give us any kind of lead-in. There's no planning. They just go. They're selected, and they go. But there's a sense of urgency and a sense of immediacy. There's like we're in the moment, and that's always a hallmark of Mark's gospel. So they climb the mountain, and then they get up there, and in an instant, Jesus is transfigured. The Greek word that transfiguration comes from or is the root of the word that we say is metamorphosis, the Greek word for the English metamorphosis. It's like when a caterpillar metamorphoses <clears throat> into a butterfly. There's a huge change, obviously, but the molecules inside of that creature remain the same. Jesus went to the mountaintop. He was transfigured. He changed in appearance, but he did not change in DNA because his DNA was already divine. The Bible says that his clothes became dazzling bright. It was a whiteness that could not be achieved by any human effort to bleach anything. Because Jesus is truly the light of the world. So his brightness was as dazzling as a white hot light. Something too bright maybe even for the human eye. It was his his true nature was showing through all the pores in his body. The transfiguration of Jesus is a transformation, a metamorphosis of his body that released the life that was within him. In the next instance, there's a conference. Elijah and Moses are suddenly there, and they're all talking to Jesus as if they were at a Presbytery meeting somewhere, a group of holy men at a holy conference. And then there are all these disciples over on the side, and they don't really know what to make of all this, but Peter, of course, always has something to say. Peter blurts out the first thing that comes into his head, as he usually does. This is great. These are the three mega prophets of Israel. This place, this Real estate here, this should be a shrine. We should make some dwellings, and the three of you guys can all stay here, and we can have this experience all the time. But that's not what it was all about. It was a rare moment, but expanding the moment was not what it was all about. What it was all about was Mark showing us 
that this Jesus of Nazareth is not just another teacher, not just another healer, not just another great prophet, but he is God with us. And then to make certain that we understand, Mark gives this echo that goes back to Jesus' baptism. A cloud overshadows them, and from the cloud comes this voice, this is my son, the beloved. And then there are these extra words, listen to him. Well, if the disciples really listened, then is Jesus' transfiguration the only transformation in that place? Is it only Jesus who's white hot inner light shines through his human body isn't there something else revealed in other people isn't it also those who have witnessed the holy moment those who have seen and heard doesn't something happen to them too would would it be possible for these men Peter James and John to go back down the mountain after that and just go on as if nothing had ever really happened? Of course not. They're all standing around. They're mouthing the words silently, Did you see that? Seems ironic then that Jesus swears them to secrecy about the event. I mean, how could anybody really remain quiet after something like that? We also read this tr- great transition in the Old Testament from Elijah to Elisha. And there's a connection in these two transitions. There's a connection between our New Testament reading and our Old Testament reading here today. Elijah's departure, well, it must have been a pretty amazing sight for his student and protege, Elisha. For days and days, Elisha knew, had an inkling that something was going on. Something was about to happen, but he had to stick close to Elijah. He just couldn't leave. All those prophets in Jericho and all these other places, they all tried to persuade him. Even Elijah tried to persuade him not to go along, to stop, stay there. But he wouldn't do it. Elisha was steady, and he was prepared to bear any distress that the passing of Elijah might hold for him as a young prophet. When the event finally happens at the Jordan, the one gift, the one only gift that Elisha seeks from his teacher, what is it? It's a double share of Elijah's spirit. double share of Elijah's spirit. It's a tremendous thing, really. It may sound just sort of like theology. It may sound like, well, this is what you would obviously ask. You are great. Give me a double share of your greatness. That will make me something. I don't know what. Maybe it'll turn me into something. It's Maybe it's the resource that I need to do what I've got to do now. 
a transformative thing, a thing that might release something sacred within Elisha to make, them the, make him the kind of prophet that God called him to be, the kind of person that God called him to be. And then Elisha witnesses the ascension of Elijah on the chariot, the flaming chariot, and Elisha receives the transforming double share of Elijah's spirit. And immediately, Elisha picks up Elijah's mantle. He rolls it up like Elijah did, and he strikes the Jordan River, and again, it parts. Dry path, a way forward, opens up for him. That event left Elisha with an insight and a power and a spirituality that he would never have come across any other way. Maybe that's what the ending of Elijah's ministry was all about, empowering Elisha. I want you to know that my reading and study for sermons and Bible study is not just grounded in all these great teachers I had in seminary and people that I've read in these old dusty books. I remember when I was in seminary, there was a great room that was the sort of book, big book room of the libraries about the size of the sanctuary filled with all these books. And it was so powerful, all these books that were there. But you know what? I was allergic to the place. And I would come out of there with a stopped up head and I couldn't go back in. It was a great place to study, you know, one of those big library rooms, but I couldn't do it. I have recently found the gospel by Gen Z, however. You're thinking, oh, this is nuts. And it is pretty nuts. There's a glossary of terms here in the back. You know, spill the tea means revelation. Um, uh, there's, I can't even go into all these. But I want you to know that even Gen Z understands this moment of transformation. I know you all are older. You think that the Gen Z are the crazy people? Maybe they're on to something. So listen to the Gen Z description of the first part of the Transfiguration. Jesus took his three besties up a mountain and he dropped the hardest reality edit and thought they would not notice. For he had a supernatural glow up and his face and his clothes were divinely extra. And here's the big part. And when they saw this, it altered their brain chemistry. That is what I'm talking about. Altering your brain chemistry. I don't care if you're Elisha or if you're these three disciples, your brain chemistry is altered. And when you find this doorway, your brain chemistry is going to be altered. The connection that occurs between the Old Testament story and the New Testament story is a matter of altering brain chemistry. 
It's this. In both cases, not only does the miraculous event occur in which the main character is transformed, but in both cases, the followers of the main character are also irrevocably transformed. You cannot go along on one of these expeditions and not be transformed. And the transformational epiphany lodges itself, in these stories, it lodged itself within these secondary characters, and then it goes with them on through the rest of their lives in ministry. And in both these cases, the Old Testament and the New Testament, these people witness, play, the, the, wit, the thing that they witness places a mantle upon them, a mantle of power and responsibility that they will carry throughout their lives. Now that may sound like a great thing, but you know, you have to remember that the thing about inheriting a mantle from a mentor is that you take up where the mentor left off. It's not about you. It's about the journey that's been going on long before you came along. You're never again your own master. You're part of a continuation of leadership of the one who went before you and went before them, before them, part of a divine legacy. Inheriting a mantle of sacred responsibility might even become burdensome, will take away your footloose freedom to do however you wish and whatever you wish as an individual. It will show you your created purpose, and you may not like it. On the mountaintop, Peter and James and John found that secret door to this other world, God, the otherworldly place of God, God's kingdom, a portal. They saw a world in which Christ's true nature was not hidden and where he was in the company of a very few others who had also undergone some spiritual transformation. And Elisha, Elisha found that secret door, and he too witnessed an event from under the hidden, from the hidden spiritual world, the divine world, and there he found both identity and a sacred purpose. Everybody who has these epiphanies has been spiritually transformed for life, for an entire lifetime. And spiritual transformation is an important part of salvation. It's no good knowing the mechanics of Christianity or being able to apply the lessons of the Bible or dissecting it, all that stuff. It's no good. That stuff is no good if we never gain an understanding of the ways of God or have inspiration through Christ. We need spiritual vision. Even though we can't dwell in the moment we receive that vision or live in the rarefied air of transfiguration, that vision is a portal for us, for us here. We gaze into it and we find out about the triune God and we also find out about ourselves. Our brain chemistry is altered. We find out who we really are 
and we find out what our true purpose really is. It might be a vision that easily slips through our fingers and we reach for it trying to get it back. But it's a real vision and it shows what our God, something about our God-given potential and purpose. And that's all real. The question is, once we've seen the vision, what will we do then? Amen.